0: You ever have the experience of um, not knowing who you can trust? That's kind of a frustrating thing, right? I, I feel like a lot of us have gotten there gradually, or some of us got there real quickly over the last two years. Of just not really knowing who we're supposed to trust. We hear things like, oh, you're not supposed to trust uh, legacy media. And then, oh, you're not supposed to trust social media. Oh, you're not, you obviously can't trust the political media. Leaders, it seems like the medical people have some kind of agenda. Well, we can, you know, we can trust the people who agree with us. Well, who's agree? Surely the people in church. No, people in church don't. My neighbors don't. My family members don't agree with me. You can't. And now on a day like today, you certainly can't trust those people with no masks on. Or conversely, you can't trust the people with masks on. It just kind of plays with your mind after a little while. Why does no one see Things exactly the way I do? What's the real story? This, uh, this sank in for me um, a couple weeks ago when I, as, as everything was beginning to unfold, just beginning to unfold in, in Ukraine, and we're watching things on the news and hearing about Russia's tactics in war. And um, I was sent a copy of a text message from a friend of a friend who was on the ground in Ukraine describing what was happening in terms that were very different than what the news was reporting. And I thought, like, what am I supposed to do? Like, what am I supposed to trust? Who am I supposed to believe? I can't, like, figure out what's happening. I can't even figure out what's happening in my own country. Never mind figure out what's happening across the world. And this feeling of just despair of, like, what in the world are we supposed to believe? It's, I don't think I'm alone. You can you can read. There's um, ex- experientially, I've I've talked to people who felt this. You can read the studies that have been done over the last couple of years of decline of trust in public institutions and politicians and the medical industry and all of these things. And and sadly, even in the religious sphere, the last couple of years, even in the GTA, even recently, we've been given more and more reason to begin to question whether or not we can even believe and put our trust in. Religious leaders, many things have changed over the past 2,000 years since the time of Jesus' incarnation. One thing that has not changed is the human condition. As much as this is being felt intensely in our moment, the reality is that through every generation, we are still faced with this dilemma. In this narrative that James just read for us in Matthew chapter 26, confusion... And lies are found in places where there should be clarity and truth. In the the dark of this night, in this trial that's being carried out, this so-called trial, this miscarrying of justice, we see lies and confusions front and center. Jesus is on trial before religious leaders. The high priest of God's people, the priestly class is all gathered together. They're supposed to be the ones who are experts in the law, who speak the law to God's people. If there's going to be justice in any justice system, if there's going to be truth anywhere, it should be here with religious leaders carrying out a trial, right? And, and yet here we find it being carried out in the middle of the night rather than spread out over two days like it's supposed to. It's in the high priest's house rather than in the temple like it's supposed to be. Look at how it's described, verse 59. This tells us everything we need to know. Now the chief priests and the whole council, the Sanhedrin, the council of God's people, they were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. This is a scene of utter confusion. Confusion. What in the world is going on? So the, the point isn't that they're just trying to drum up liars. If they wanted that, they could have had that. The point is that they need two people who agree about something that Jesus has said or done that would be worthy to condemn him of death. According to their law, they need two witnesses who agree. The point isn't that they're trying to, like I said, drum up liars to just make something up. The point is they're so committed to their narrative, this must be the case that we just have to find some kind of support, some kind of person who will say something that will back up my narrative. You familiar with that kind of thinking? We see it everywhere, right? Like you see news that you don't like. What do you do? You flip a few channels down and find a different news station that's broadcasting something else. and Find some truth that backs up your narrative so that you feel confident in your conclusions as well. Okay, that's the religious leaders, So We kind of expect it from them. They're, they're hypocrites anyway. What about Jesus' people? Well, you remember Jesus' people, his disciples. At the end of the last passage when he was being arrested, they all left him and fled there's there's a glimmer of hope though there's one who seems like he might be trustworthy here's peter he follows him yeah he follows him at a distance and only into the courtyard but at least he's following peter who'd proclaimed that he would be faithful to the end right but look at what happens verse 69 a servant girl came up to him and said you also were with jesus the galilean but he denied it before them all saying i don't know what you mean Verse 72, he denies it again, this time with an oath. Verse 74, then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man, and immediately the rooster crowed. Peter, the last remaining one, who even looked like he might be faithful, proves that he too cannot be trusted. In this one dark night, everyone from the high priest to the false witnesses caught up in the drama of the moment, to the disciples of Jesus, everyone falls away. Everyone fails. Everyone proves they cannot be trusted. Whether from outright deception or willing blindness or simple human failure, they just couldn't keep their word. Most of us, know what that feels like to not know who we can trust, where to find truth, what to believe. And even if you're not jaded by that, it's sad, right? That's not the way we want to live That's not the way we want to exist. The result of that, of not knowing who we can trust or what we can believe is stress, anxiety, worry, fear, distance from people, distance in relationships. But what I want to say this morning simply is this. As Jesus faces this dark night and this trial in the midst of all this confusion and untruth, Jesus shines forth, friend. Jesus shines forth as the only one you can trust. And that does not change. Today, right now, I want to simply argue with you that you still can put your trust in Jesus. When everyone else proves false, when everything else falls short, when you don't know what else to believe, you can trust Jesus. And there's peace, and there's joy, and there's security, and there's hope, and there's freedom When you put your trust in Jesus, what I want to do is I want to show you in this passage, in this night of confusion, in this world of lies, three words of truth that Jesus spoke to us that prove to us that we can trust him. Okay, Here's, here's the first one. Jesus said... Jesus said that he would be beaten. I'm going, to sh- I'm going to show you this. We're going to go back in time and see where he said this. But first of all, I want to show you how it plays out in the narrative. Okay? So verse 57, where James began reading for us. Then those who had seized Jesus, they arrested him in the Garden of Gethsemane. They bring him now. They lead him to Caiaphas, the high priest. And this is significant. If you remember what a priest is. In the economic system of God's people, the religious system, the cultic system of God's people, the priest is the one who represents God's people to God. So the representation of what the people are towards God is found in the priest, which ultimately we're going to see that play out as this high priest puts to death the God who claims kingship over his people. It's the same heart of the people there's a profound irony in that, not in the way you would have wanted or hoped, but in the way it must be. He represents God's people. But secondly, the priest is the one who has to offer the sacrifice for sins, on behalf of God's people, for the forgiveness of sins. And so in this bizarre way that the high priest doesn't even know we're going to see this fulfilled, he is the one who's going to offer the sacrifice on behalf of God's people, which ultimately will be Jesus, who he's seeking to put to death. So they bring him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. Verse 58, Peter following at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest... And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. How's it all going to play out? Verse 59 the chief priests. And the whole council were seeking false testimony, as we said, against Jesus, that they might put him to death. And they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. So picture the chaos of the scene. I heard him say this. I heard him say this. Well, does this agree with that? Who says this? Well, that's not good enough. That's not bad enough. That's not whatever. And so they're trying to pull the crowd and find someone who agrees with their narrative. At last, we hear this. At last, verse 62 came forward, verse 61, and said, this man said... I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three ways. They think they've got a gotcha. They think they've got a smoking gun. Because uh, in most religious contexts in this day, and in, in Judaism, there was no exception. If you desecrate a holy place, that is, that, is, that is punishable by death. So if what Jesus has said is, I'm going to destroy the temple then in one sense, they would see that as justification for putting him to death. He's going to desecrate something that's holy. But this, oh, this gets me. You ever have a situation like this in your life? They got words that are sort of what Jesus said, but they're ripped out of context and they're kind of changed. So it's not actually at all what Jesus said. Oh, that's frustrating. If you go back in John chapter two, the words that Jesus said were a little bit different. He didn't say, I'm able to destroy the temple. He said, you destroy the temple. And he was talking about his own body. He was actually prophesying this very moment where they're going to put him to death. He said, destroy this temple. And he didn't say, I'll rebuild it after three days. He said, I will raise it. Now to the people who didn't understand what he meant, rebuilding, raising, whatever. You can raise a barn or build a barn, whatever. It doesn't make a difference. You can, but to Jesus, that word makes it all the difference. On the third day, the temple that they destroy will be raised. And so in thinking that they've got a gotcha on him, actually all they're doing is fulfilling the very prophecy that he spoke to them. They don't know if it's enough, so they ask him to defend himself. Verse 62, And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. That's significant. Why is that significant? Because Jesus is fulfilling prophecy. In Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 7, we read that he will remain silent like a sheep before his shearers. He's he's not going to respond. He's not going to engage in this foolish dialogue. He's not going to answer a fool according to their folly. And so he remains silent. But they keep pressing. Pressing. So the high priest says, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. He puts Jesus under oath before God. He's charged before God. He must answer if he is the Christ, the son of God. Those two titles, if, if not equivalent, are bound up together. Remember, Peter had the same kind of conception in Matthew 16 when he proclaimed Jesus to be the Messiah, the Christ. He said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God, the son of God who would reign in God's place over God's people. That's what the Christ was supposed to do. And so these titles go, go one with another. Are you the Christ, the son of God? And Jesus has to answer now. So he says, you have said so. What you've said, the words that you've said are true, but he wants to add to it. But I tell you, From now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest, when he hears this, tears his robes. That's what he's supposed to do only in cases of blasphemy. Tears his robes because he says, this is blasphemy. You've heard his blasphemy. Verse 66, what is your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. This is incredible. It's it's only... In a culture of lies. Where truth is considered the only actual blasphemy. (laughs) The only one who's convicted of anything is the one who actually speaks words that are true. And they think this truth that he's spoken is worthy of death. So they condemn him to death. Verse 67. Then they spat in his face and struck him. And some slapped him, saying, prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? The other gospel writers inform us that they had blindfolded Jesus. So it becomes a game of, oh, let's test if he's really a prophet. Obviously, he's not. So we can blindfold him and hit him. And he won't be able to tell us which of us is actually hitting him. Now, it's important for us to pause and consider the scene here where the high priest, the house of the high priest, In Jerusalem, and the priests and the elders and the scribes are all gathered together and they all condemn him to death. They mock him. They shamefully treat him before they're about to hand him over to the Gentiles who will put him to death. And they're mocking him as a prophet. Because they don't believe he can prophesy. But listen to what he actually prophesied long before this scene. Matthew chapter 16 verse 21. From that time on, repeatedly, Jesus was telling them, he began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, which is where he is, and suffer many things, which is what he's doing, from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. He said this was coming. He prophesied this, Matthew chapter 20 and verse 17. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside and on the way he said to them, see, we're going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they'll condemn him to death, deliver him to the Gentiles. He'll be mocked and flogged and crucified. This would be comical if it was not tragic. They are fulfilling his prophecy with their fists while they mock him for not being a prophet. They're so utterly blind. So committed to lies. Jesus can fulfill Isaiah 53 and remain silent when he's being tried because he's already said everything that he needs to say. Everything that will come to pass will come to pass exactly as he's spoken. As these religious leaders seek false witnesses, Jesus proves to us that he has spoken truth. He prophesied this. He said it was coming, and it did. Here's a a second word that Jesus said, a second word of truth in this night of lies, in this world of lies. Jesus said not only would he be beaten, but he would be betrayed Everything that Peter does was predicted by Jesus even this night. But look at how it unfolds. We've already read a little bit of it. Peter in verse 69 is in the courtyard. He's trying, he's trying to make good on his word what he said would come to pass, which is I'll be faithful even if it costs me my life. So he's trying to fulfill his word. But when a servant girl comes, now again, we, it's easy from the perspective of thousands of years and knowing the end of the story to be like, Peter, what were you doing? But haven't you ever found yourself in a moment where all of a sudden, you know, you thought you'd prepared to stand firm, but you just find your integrity eroding, <laughs> temptation coming like a, like a wall, like just, just crushing. H- haven't you ever felt the temptation to just, well, if I just, I could just compromise in this moment. It's so small. It's just a servant girl. No one will know. But you know the way lies work, right? You tell one, And then you got to tell another one to back that up. And then you got to tell another one. And you're just in so deep before you even realize what's happening. And that's exactly what transpires. So that he says, the first time, I don't know what you mean. Verse 72, he denies it with an oath. Something like, I swear to God, or God is my witness. I don't know the man. As if that wasn't enough to sober him. He says, verse 73, or verse 73, we read this. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you two are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself. He's so committed to his lie and to his cover-up. He begins to invite the wrath of God on himself. If I'm lying, may God strike me dead or something like that. God is my witness again. He swears, I do not know the man. His word is utterly void. Foolish, faithless, untrustworthy. Immediately the rooster crowed and Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, which was trustworthy and true. Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Jesus waited until he was forced under oath to say anything. And what he did say was truth that cost him his life. Peter willingly invokes an oath on himself in order to speak lies to try to save his life. The two could not be contrasted any more clearly. And this exactly is the point of the whole gospel, isn't it? We can't save ourselves. From the beginning of Matthew's gospel, this is exactly what Jesus was born for. What is he born for? He will save his people from their sins. Why did God have to be born? Because we couldn't save ourselves. What does Peter show us? We're all untrustworthy, faithless failures. But that's why Jesus was born. Even the best and most passionate, the strongest, the most bold of us can make great boasts and great commitments and all kinds of great renewal promises to God. We can put forward our virtue and our loyalty. But in the end, each of us is just like Peter. Peter had fallen short of God's law. Sure, lots of times before this. Um... There'd been anger, I'm sure, unrighteous anger in his heart, lust, covetousness. There may have been moments of deception at some point in his life leading up to now lies. All all manner of sin that had existed in his heart. But sometimes what it takes to really bring us to a point of brokenness, experientially, to have our eyes open to our sin and our need, it's not just falling short of God's law, but falling short of what we even expected for ourselves. Sometimes it's like, God's law is so high, of course I'm going to fall short of that. But then we can justify that, right? We can be like, well, at least I, at, at least I, I do this. Or at least I'm like this. At least I'm like this kind of person. I'm not like, at least I'm not like them. At least I haven't done those things. At least, and we've got all this, this list of at leasts, right? That we like to hold on to to try to justify ourselves. At least I'm, you fill in the blank with whatever it is for you. But have you ever had a moment where God strips away all your at least? All your resolve, all your commitment, all your belief that you were better than this. It's just stripped away and it's laid bare and you've got absolutely Nothing. As Peter goes out and weeps bitterly, he finally begins to experience what Jesus said in Matthew 5, chapter 3, blessed are the poor in spirit. We've got nothing. We've fallen short of God's law. We've fallen short of our own commitments, our own values, our own resolutions. Friend, it didn't catch Jesus by surprise for you any more than it did for Peter. Peter, He explicitly told Peter that he was going to fall short, but he already knows about your sins too. Remember, he was born to save his people from their sins. That means before he was born, he knew his people's sins. When he goes to the cross, he bears your sins in his body on the cross, which means you who had not yet been born, your sins were born on him in his body. He knew them. He knows them. He knows your sins, your failures, your falling short. He knows all of it. And that's why he went to the cross. He knew it was coming. And he went to die. To pay the price for your sins. For your failures. Because you, like the rest of humanity, are untrustworthy. Because you fail and fall short. Because you need Forgiveness. Jesus said he would be betrayed. Just like he predicted his sufferings, the trial and the beatings. And he was. All of what he said proved true. Here's here's why that's really important for us. Because Jesus is better than your weather app. Right? Right? Like I don't, I don't know about you, but especially this time of year, I, I treat my weather app kind of like a gambling addict goes to lottery numbers in the morning, right? Like you, and it's just like, come on, give me sun, give me sun, give me heat, give me something. Like, and then throughout the day, I'm just checking, like, it's, give me some good news. Like, like I'm, I'm craving some kind of sun or warmth or something. And then you get this, and and. But the funny thing about the weather app is no matter how many times you check it, they just keep changing it and updating it. And throughout the pandemic, I've kind of mused myself. I don't know what's more reliable, the Ontario Science Table modeling or the weather app. I don't know. They're both wildly wrong like 90% of the time. They're crazy. Um, but still, we just keep trusting them for some reason. Because I don't know, maybe it's run by smarter people than me or something. I don't get it. But I just keep going back to it and looking, even though it's proven itself untrustworthy. But what if you could find a weather app? That was actually right. Like it actually told you what was going to be coming. And then you get this today, but you look at your app and it tells you tomorrow's going to be 32 and sunny. You know what that would do? I would be happy even when there's snow. Because it's proven true in the past and it's told me what's coming in the future. And so I'm going to be getting out my sandals and my shorts tonight because I can anticipate the truth of what's coming tomorrow. So, So Jesus told us what was coming, and it came. So friends, we can live in light of what he says is still coming with confidence. He who is trustworthy, who's proven true every step of the way, gives us this third word of truth. Jesus says, Jesus says, To those who are putting him on trial and ready to put him to death, that he will rise and that he will reign. The very passages where Jesus predicted his suffering and death are bound up with his resurrection and life. It's two sides of the same coin. Jesus can't talk about one without immediately talking about the other. Look at Matthew chapter 16 and verse 21. Again, we saw this. Jesus is showing his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and what? And on the third day be raised. Matthew chapter 17, verse 22. And as they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. This is what he said all along. And then in our passage, when he's on trial, and he's getting set to die for what he says when he proclaims himself to be the Christ, the Son of God, he includes these words in verse 64. You've said so. I am the Christ, the Son of Man. And I tell you, I want to add on to that because your categories are way too small. I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. What does that mean? Well, Jesus, in talking about being seated at the right hand of power, is prophesying again. He's saying, I'm fulfilling the prophecy of Psalm 110. Psalm 110, verse 1, which gives us these words. Yahweh, Yahweh God said to my Lord, the the Lord of King David. So Yahweh says to David's king and to David's Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. If that's going to be fulfilled, you know what has to happen first? He can't be dead. You can't be dead and be seated at the right hand of power on high. It, it means that at the very least, whatever's going to happen, whatever you do to me, when you kill me, I will rise and I will live. But like the late night infomercials always used to say, but wait, there's more. It's not simply, it's not simply a matter of rising to live again. He doesn't just rise to do nothing. Like So I, I I think about this because I hate waking up in the mornings, but there are two there are two uh, types of mornings that are okay to wake up on, right? And I dream about these from time to time. Uh, the morning where you wake up and you're like, what am I going to do today? I have nothing to do. There's <laughs> like no demands. No one needs anything. No one wants anything. I don't even have to brush my teeth. Like it's gross, right? Like I don't have to, I don't have to do anything. Like that, that seems like that's pretty sweet. But you couldn't do that for long, right? That'd be I get pretty awful pretty quick. The other type of morning that's great to wake up on are the mornings where you wake up and say, today's the day. And you you fill in the blank. What is it that you've been waiting for? Some of you are waiting for marriage. Some of you are waiting for a baby. You know, whatever the case is, you're anticipating retirement, like whatever it is, today's the day. And you get to get busy doing the thing that it is that you've been waiting for. Jesus, when he predicts his resurrection, his rise, he doesn't rise to do nothing. He doesn't say, sweet, I get to kick back and relax and do nothing. Jesus rises and gets to, he gets to reign from the right hand of the throne of God Almighty. Jesus, I love this, Jesus, on trial, in the house of the high priest, They're trying to work everything according to their plan and their will, and they're they're, they're working, they're manipulating, they're getting away with just fudging all of the rules and getting the right people there in the middle of the night and trying to get it done before Passover and all of these things that they're trying to do. And and, and they're so anxious trying to make it come to pass, they're trying to find false witnesses, and Jesus is totally in control. And he says, I'm going to rise, I'm going to reign. For all you grasping at power, you're going to be under my feet. My enemies will be my footstool. So judge me now. Put me to death. Because I know what's coming. This is a fulfillment, not just of Psalm 110, but also of Daniel 7. When Jesus says, I'm not just the son of God, but the son of man. He's, he's referencing this coming on the clouds that's pictured in Daniel chapter 7, where Jesus... Jesus, meek and mild. Jesus, misunderstood and abused and mocked and scorned, beaten and killed. Jesus, crucified, will no longer and never again suffer. Daniel chapter 7 reads this. I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days. That's the God himself. He comes to the throne of God, was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus says, guys, kill me this is how my kingdom comes and it will come because I'm going to rise and I'm going to reign, and I'm going to return. And you'll see me on the clouds of heaven and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Condemn me, kill me, but watch what's coming next. This is a funny thing about truth. Jesus speaks truth so boldly truth. Truth hits people different ways, right? You can say the same truth to different groups of people. If I uh, if I say, "Man, that was a great hockey game last night," you know, for those of you, you know, for those of you who are still Maple Leafs fans, you know, uh, if that was a great hockey game last night. That truth hits you because, by the way, the Maple Leafs lost to one of the worst teams, if not the worst team in the league, which is my team, the Montreal Canadiens. Uh, so that truth hits me, and I'm excited. That's I just think it's funny. <laughs> that truth doesn't hit everyone the same way. I texted someone this morning. He didn't seem so happy about it. <laughs> it's truth. It's truth that Jesus says he's going to rise. He's going to reign. It hits people differently. It hits them. They are enraged. They want to do everything in their power to stop it. But this truth that Jesus proclaims is the truth that he himself is speaking out loud and clinging to so that he can endure the cross. Do you know that? Jesus is speaking the truth to remind himself of truth, to bolster his strength so that he will be able to endure. This is what we read in Hebrews 12. We look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and now is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He was picturing this truth in this moment, preparing to go to the cross, knowing that this truth of what's on the other side of death, the resurrection and the reign, the seat at the right hand of God, was what would give him joy and strength and power to endure the the cross. That's how that truth hit him. How does the truth hit you? How does it hit you that Jesus says he is king? Is that good news? That Jesus reigns over all things. That the one who is crucified is resurrected. He is reigning at the right hand of the Father even now. And one day he will return and our eyes will see him. How does that truth hit you? What about the promise of your resurrection? You will be raised with Christ if you have put your trust in him him there is hope and there is a future a promise that you you will always be with the lord the promise that no weapon that's fashioned against us will be able to stand And nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus that no eye has seen and no ear has heard and no mind has even conceived what the Lord has prepared for us when the fullness of Jesus' kingdom comes. How does it hit you that the one who promised his betrayal and his beating and his crucifixion and his death has also promised resurrection life to you? The eradication of all evil, the elimination of all lies, all false truths, all duplicity, all of it will be obliterated. The expulsion of all confusion. And the birth of bright, sweet clarity. The promise that death will be swallowed up forever. And sin and sorrow and suffering will be crushed. How does it hit you that our Savior, who is trustworthy, has promised to you, friend, that the God who walks with us all of our days, all the days of our suffering and keeps our tears precious in a bottle. We'll take the very last of our tears and wipe them off of our cheeks once and for all in the resurrection when the fullness of his kingdom comes. This is what Jesus has on his heart and his mind as he's on trial preparing to suffer and die. Do you have it on your heart and mind? the promise that after we have suffered, friend, after you have suffered for a little while, that the God of glory, our King himself, will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Does it give you strength to persevere? Have you trusted in him? Have you trusted in him so that that truth gives you perspective and clarity in the midst of the fog, so that it gives you peace in the midst of the chaos, so that it gives you conviction right now to flee from sin in light of that coming day? Does the truth, the word of truth that Jesus is resurrected, that Jesus is reigning, that Jesus will return, does it help you in your struggles? from fears and trials, which though real and present, does it it help them to at least shrink to their appropriate size under the feet of your crucified king? My friends, you can trust Jesus. Every word that he ever said, he has proven to be true. He said he would be beaten, betrayed, and crucified, and he was. He said he would be resurrected, and he was. And this same king has promised he's returning. And friend, he is. So let's pray.